Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, this is Randall Chan, and this is the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we'll be talking about an 11-year-old male who presents to the emergency room with chest pain, palpitations, diaphoresis, and dizziness while playing soccer earlier in the day. He describes the chest pain as occurring in the center of his chest and squeezing in nature. He notes that the palpitations occurred suddenly and clearly preceded the chest pain. On the onset of symptoms, he had immediately stopped playing. The symptoms resolved after five minutes, and he attempted returning to play, but the symptoms recurred and have since persisted over the last three hours. What is a differential diagnosis of chest pain in a child or adolescent? Chest pain is a common complaint both at the pediatrician's office and in the emergency department. Despite frequent patient and parental concern for cardiac disease, a cardiac cause accounts for only 0.5 to 1% of pediatric patients with chest pain. Overuse, trauma, costochondritis, Tietze syndrome, idiopathic chest wall pain, and slipping rib syndrome are common musculoskeletal considerations. Pediatric patients with concomitant chronic diseases may have musculoskeletal complications that manifest as chest pain, such as patients with sickle cell disease who develop acute chest syndrome or vasoocclusive crisis. Due to the innervation pattern of the lungs and pleura, intrinsic lung pathology such as pleural effusion, pneumothorax, pneumonia, or asthma may present as chest pain. Additionally, significant and prolonged increased work of breathing in patients with asthma or other compensative pulmonary conditions may result in muscular strain due to excessive muscle use. Gastrointestinal disease such as reflux, peptic ulcer disease, esophagitis, and cholecystitis may also present with chest pain. Neurologic conditions such as hyperesthesia due to herpes zoster or anxiety are also the differential for pediatric chest pain. Chest or mediastinal neoplasms such as lymphoma may also precipitate a chip a chief complaint of chest pain. Step 1, 2, and 3 Pearl. Chest pain is rarely cardiac in origin in a pediatric patient. What symptoms, examination findings, and or findings in family history suggest a cardiac cause of chest pain in contrast to non-cardiac chest pain? Symptoms such as syncope, exertional chest pain or syncope, exercise intolerance, symptoms of heart failure, or palpitations increase suspicion for a cardiac cause. Chest pain or syncope with activity is a red flag symptom that is consistent across different cardiac abnormalities. Exercise intolerance, orthopnea, dependent edema, and in an infant, tachypnea, or feeding and excessive sweating all may suggest congestive heart failure. Palpitations may suggest an arrhythmia. Step 2 and 3, Pearl. Sudden onset tachycardia and palpitations with abrupt cessation is consistent with arrhythmia, whereas sinus tachycardia and subarrhythmias have a more gradual onset and return to baseline. Eliciting a social history may reveal potential intoxication with illicit substances such as cocaine or methamphetamine. Family history is a very important piece in the evaluation of a chest pain. A history of early death in the family due to any cause may be an indication of an undiagnosed hereditary arrhythmia syndrome, or familial cardiomyopathy syndromes such as hypertrophic, dilated, or restrictive cardiomyopathy. On the physical examination, pathologic murmurs, rubs, clicks, Gallops or irregular rhythm noticed on auscultation are more suggestive of a cardiac cause. Extracardiac findings such as pectus excavatum or carinatum, joint hyperflexibility or dysmorphism may also suggest a, a connective tissue disease such as Marfan syndrome that may have an associated cardiac disease. Step 2 and 3 Pearl 
Chest pain or syncope during exercise should raise concern for cardiac pathology. Returning to our case, you find there is no past medical history or family history for cardiac disease or sudden death. Vitals on evaluation are notable for a temperature of 98.6, pulse rate of 224 beats per minute, blood pressure of 142 over 92 millimeters of mercury, and a respiratory rate of 20 beats per minute. Oxygen saturation is 100% on room air. Examination findings are notable for diaphoresis and an extremely fast heartbeat. What is the most likely diagnosis given the magnitude of tachycardia? Heart rates exceeding 200 beats per minute are concerning for supraventricular tachycardia, the most common arrhythmia identified in children. The average heart rate in a pediatric patient with SVT is 235 beats per minute. This is dependent on age. Infants in the first 9 months of life present with an average heart rate of 270 beats per minute, whereas older children present with an average heart rate of 210 beats per minute. Step 2 and 3 Pearl Heart rate more than 220 beats per minute in infants and more than 180 beats per minute for children should trigger an evaluation for SVT. Children with very high heart rates may still be in sinus tachycardia, however. This can be difficult to determine at high heart rates because P waves may be difficult or even impossible to appreciate. Furthermore, the presence of P waves does not rule out SVT due to an ectopic atrial pacemaker. A 12-lead echocardiogram can help identify the source of a P wave. The character of the heart rate may also assist in identifying a sinus rhythm. In SVT, the heart rate is fixed and non-variable, whereas in sinus tachycardia, beat-to-beat variations by the activity and vagal tone can be appreciated. Step 1, 2, and 3, Pearl. SVT does not show variability in rhythm and rate. Timing and polarity of P waves in relationship to R waves help elicit the mechanism of SVT. For example, a retrograde P wave with negative polarity in inferior leads, leads 2, 3, and ABF, would indicate an orthodromic accessory pathway. Returning to our case, the electrocardiogram shows a narrow complex fixed rate tachycardia. What is the differential diagnosis of supraventricular tachycardia? The two major subcategories of SVT in the pediatric population are reentrant or reciprocal atrioventricular tachyarrhythmias, or RAVTs, and ectopic or automatic tachyarrhythmias. RAVTs occur when electrical conductance occurs in a rapid loop from the atria to the ventricles and back, passing through the AV node in at least one direction. An accessory pathway may be involved in the opposite direction. RAVTs may occur due to a pre-excitatory accessory pathway, for example, Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern, in association with congenital heart malformations, such as Epstein's anomaly, or after cardiac surgery. Up to 50% of pediatric patients with RAVTs, particularly infants, do not have any underlying heart disease. Ectopic and automatic tachyarrhythmias include an ectopic pacemaker, multifocal atrial tachycardia, atrial flutter, atrial fibrillation, and junctional or nodal ectopic tachycardia. RAVTs are far more common in children than ectopic or automatic tachyarrhythmias. What are the immediate next steps to assess and or stabilize this child? Determining hemodynamic stability dictates the next steps. Hypotension, signs of heart failure, and or altered levels of consciousness indicate hemodynamic instability and mandates emergency treatment. In an infant, an altered level of consciousness can vary from irritability to poor feeding to lethargy. If a patient is hemodynamically unstable, a rapid trial of adenosine to terminate the aberrant rhythm is indicated if intravenous or intraosseous access is already available. In patients without intravenous or intraosseous access, or those who do not respond to adenosine, the immediate next step would be synchronized cardioversion at 0.5 to 1 joule per kilogram. Step 2 and 3 Pearl Whenever termination of SVT is attempted, whether via chemical or electrical means, 
emergency resuscitation equipment, and appropriate personnel should be on hand to treat a potential cardiac arrest. Step 2 and 3 Pearl If a patient is in cardiac arrest, cardiopulmonary resuscitation should be initiated regardless of the underlying electrical rhythm. For hemodynamically stable SVT, vagal maneuvers such as an ice bag over the face for 15 to 30 seconds or a valsalva maneuver may be sufficient to terminate SVT. The use of carotid massage and or orbital pressure to elicit vagal tone is no longer recommended. If a patient does not respond to vagal maneuvers, adenosine may be given at an initial dose of 0.1 mg per kilogram rapid bolus, IV or IO to a maximum dose of 6 mg. A second dose at double the amount may be given immediately after this if there is no response to the first dose. Continuous electrocardiographic recording should be performed during adenosine administration because the electrocardiographic response could be diagnostic. Uh, for example, atrial flutter may be more clearly seen. SVT that is refractory to vagal maneuvers and adenosine may require IV antiarrhythmic therapy or transesophageal pacing. Step 2 and 3 Pearl Because the half-life of intravenous adenosine is so short, it must be pushed as fast as possible and as close to the central circulation as possible to be effective. Step 2 and 3 Pearl Vagal maneuvers may be attempted in a hemodynamically unstable patient if it can be done without leading to a delay in definitive therapy with adenosine and or synchronized cardioversion. Returning to our case, given that he is hemodynamically stable, the decision is made to give adenosine 6 mg in an attempt to terminate his arrhythmia. He does not respond to the first dose of adenosine, but a second dose of 12 mg results in a brief asystole followed by sinus rhythm at a rate of 110 beats per minute. What tachyarrhythmias terminate with adenosine? Adenosine causes a temporary block in the conduction of the AV node and interrupts the reentry circuits that involve the AV node, thereby blocking the propagation of supraventricular arrhythmias that require the AV node as part of the circuit. The temporary AV node block is enough to terminate most RAVTs and therefore can differentiate them from ectopic or automatic tachyarrhythmias because the latter do not respond to adenosine. The use of adenosine is not indicated in wide complex tachycardia because it may worsen the overall clinical picture. Notable side effects of adenosine include chest pain, flushing, dyspnea, bronchospasm, and cardiac arrhythmias. A brief period of asystole is usually noted with successful termination of the SVT, but the asystole can rarely be prolonged. A systolic arrest has been reported. Returning to our case, a 12-lead EKG was performed after termination of the arrhythmia, confirming the presence of an RAVT as the source of the SVT. A delta wave is seen on the EKG. Final diagnosis, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. What is Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome? Patients may present with either an asymptomatic Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern or a symptomatic Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Patients with a Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern on EKG manifest ventricular pre-excitation in the form of a shortened PR interval with slurred upstroke of the Q wave, uh, in other words, a delta wave, and a resulting widened QRS complex. The delta wave indicates early aberrant anti-grade AV conduction through an accessory pathway along the annulus of the atrial ventricular valves. These findings may or may not occur in association with ST or T wave changes. The findings are most sensitive in the leads V2 to V4, but may be found in all the leads. Additional echocardiographic abnormalities may include left axis deviation, absence of Q waves in V6, or widened Q waves. Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is a combination of a Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern on the EKG and paroxysmal symptomatic RAVT. Whereas accessory conduction is antigrade during sinus rhythm, resulting in a delta wave, Conduction becomes retrograde during episodes of orthodromic RAVT. This results in the disappearance of the delta wave and retrograde P waves. 
An RAVT episode is usually triggered by an atrial premature complex occurring at a moment in time when the AV node is receptive and the accessory pathway is refractory. As the refractory pathway in turn becomes receptive, retrograde conduction then occurs, starting the conductance loop that rapidly overtakes sinus pacing. Thus, in general, the essential requirement for Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is the capacity of the accessory pathway to conduct in both directions. However, in 5-7% to of patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, the retrograde conduction occurs in the AV node. The resulting RAVT is known as antidromic circus movement tachycardia, or also known as SVT with aberrancy. Such a rhythm is a diagnostic dilemma because it mimics the appearance of ventricular tachycardia. Step 2 and 3, Pearl. Although antidromic circus movement tachycardia mimics the appearance of ventricular tachycardia, the treatment of the two phenomenon are very different. In addition to orthodromic and antidromic RAVTs, patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome may also present with atrial fibrillation with rapid conduction to the ventricle. Atrial fibrillation in Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome presents with a characteristic irregular wide complex tachycardia. Rapid conduction through an accessory pathway results in disorganized ventricular depolarization manifested on the ECG as wide QRS complexes and therefore have the potential for more serious arrhythmias such as ventricular fibrillation. Step 1, 2, and 3, Pearl. Atrial fibrillation associated with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is notoriously wide complex, very fast, and very irregular. What is the overall prognosis in Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome? The overall prognosis of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is in part dependent on the presence of comorbid or associated conditions. Patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome without comorbid conditions are still at risk for heart failure and hemodynamic instability, but such complications are rare. Ventricular arrhythmias in particular are a significant risk factor for mortality, which would be sudden in presentation. Risk factors associated with cardiac arrest and sudden death include rapid antigrade conduction through an accessory pathway, tachyarrhythmia, and or multiple accessory pathways capable of potentiating life-threatening arrhythmias. Risk stratification may be performed via an exercise treadmill test. The loss of pre-excitation in a single beat suggests low risk. In a patient with comorbid atrial fibrillation, a short pre-excited RR interval of less than 220 milliseconds also indicates a higher risk for cardiac arrest. Step 2 and 3 Pearl Although rare, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome may present with cardiac arrest and sudden death due to ventricular fibrillation. How is Wolf-Parkinson-White treated? Long-term management for Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome in almost all patients will be ablation of the accessory pathway. Most pathways can be ablated by catheter, thus surgery is rarely indicated. A select few patients can be managed with observation and or antiarrhythmic medications such as beta blockers to prevent the episodic tachyarrhythmias, but some controversy exists as to whether the risk of ablation outweighs the true risk of sudden death. The management of patients with an asymptomatic Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern is also controversial. Returning to our case, no further episodes of tachyarrhythmias occurred during a 24-hour monitoring period in the pediatric intensive care unit. Echocardiography is performed but does not reveal an anatomic cause for an accessory pathway. The patient is started on, on atenolol and discharged home. A follow-up electrophysiology study performed during a cardiac catheterization procedure reveals a right-sided accessory pathway. The pathway is successfully ablated via catheter and no further episodes of tachyarrhythmias occur. Step 2 and 3 Pearl an arrhythmia presenting with presyncope or syncope is life-threatening, even if it has reverted to sinus rhythm before a diagnosis is made. These patients should not be worked up on an outpatient basis. Beyond the pearls. Number one, 
the wolf Parkinson white pattern is present in 0.1 to 0.3% of the general population, but only about 2% of those with a pre-excitation pattern on the electrocardiogram will have wolf Parkinson white syndrome. Number two, multiple algorithms have been developed to predict the location of the accessory pathway in patients with wolf Parkinson white pattern using surface electrocardiographic findings. Number three, children with wolf Parkinson white syndrome may have more than one accessory pathway. Multiple pathways put a child at higher risk for complications. Number four, AV reentry tachycardia is often inducible in patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White electrocardiographic findings during invasive electrophysiology studies. This inducible arrhythmia does not necessarily predict eventual development of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Number five, left-sided accessory pathways are more readily ablated when compared with right-sided accessory pathways. Number six, atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response can be fatal in Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Drugs generally used to treat unstable atrial fibrillation, however, often act on the AV node. In Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, this may enhance conduction along the accessory pathway and hasten the onset of hypotension and or cardiac arrest. Drugs that block accessory conduction are preferred instead, for example, procainamide. Number 7. Although adenosine is the drug of choice for terminating narrow-complex SVTs, including those caused by Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, its use is also typically contraindicated in pre-excitation atrial fibrillation due to Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. This is because AV nodal blockade may promote conduction through the accessory pathway. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.